It could have been an 18 bedroom house. If ain't no love being passed out, that don't mean shit. You going, man, them kids looking for love. When I hit the streets, I was looking for love. When I joined my gang, I was looking for love. I was looking for acceptance. I was looking for people that wanted me to be around. Give a if it meant selling weed or blowing your ass off. I just wanted the praise. I wanted to feel good about myself. I wanted to belong. That's all these kids want. That's what anybody wants. That's why we join fraternities. That's why we get these good jobs. That's why we get all in these social groups. Because what? In the end of the day, everybody want to belong. That's our biggest thing at Pure. Man, before we do anything, we're going to love on Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an entrepreneur. And I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part, it unintentionally led to an Oscar for the film about our team that's called Undefeated. Guys, I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits talking big words that nobody understands on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me deciding, hey, I can help. That's what Melvin Cole, the voice we just heard, has done. Melvin is straight from the hood in Memphis, and he has a truly wild story of drug dealing and gangbanging, but thankfully, he has an even wilder redemption story. To get out of the one of the most desperate situations you could imagine, he made a deal with God that he'd pour healthy love into kids who grew up just like he did. Today, his inner city boarding school, Pure Academy, has graduated around 50 kids and 20 of them have received full athletic scholarships to play college football. I cannot wait for you to meet Melvin right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, everybody, before we go any further, I felt compelled to share a warning about this particular episode. As you know, we've covered a lot of really heavy topics on the podcast, and I'm going to tell you something. I think this one may be the heaviest. As you know, if you've listened a lot, we usually try to edit out occasional swear words out of respect for families that may be listening and those of you who may be put off by that kind of language. Um, But frankly, in Melvin's story, there is so much detail and there are so many swear words. Uh, It would sound really, really weird to edit it that way. So, fair warning. This is an unbelievable deep topic. It's explicit. Gangs, drug dealing, prison, in very explicit detail with very raw language. And if that is going to bother you, I'd recommend listening to a past episode of the podcast you you may have missed or just skipping this one altogether. But if you can make it through all of that, The story of redemption in this episode is worth telling, and it's why we're putting it out there. Melvin's an amazing guy who's been through more than most and has come out on the other side uh, to give so much of himself uh, because of a deal he made with God. Um, But to get there, it's a bumpy road with uh, a lot of rough language, and I just want to warn you, Uh, That's what this podcast, if you listen to it, that's what you're in for. So if you're okay with it, roll with us. If you're not, we'll see you next week. So let's begin with Melvin on what his upbringing was like in South Memphis. The The biggest thing for me is I like to tell people all the time that I think it was typical. Hmm. I mean, because that's where I grew up and that's why I was around. So... For me, my grandma was a heroin addict and my other grandma was an angry drunk. So, and all my uncles and cousins were drug dealers. So from there, that became my reality 
from day one. You know what I mean? Watching my grandma get fucked for hair run, guys going in and out the house. My grandma, I used to tell people all the time, when I first got to school, when they called my name, I didn't respond. Cause I was used to motherfucker, nigga, sit your ass down and all of that. So that became the norm to me on, listen, that's how you talk. A lot of people say, man, why you cut so much? That's how I grew up. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see anything different. That was our norm, the drugs, the violence, the gangs. Um, that's what we saw. I mean, that's what we saw, that's what we lived. I remember my grandma always telling me, make sure you wash your hands so the rats won't nibble on your fingers when we stayed there. I mean, so that was that was my reality. That was my, like I like to tell people, that was my first introduction to the world. I mean. I read that um, your mother and father could not handle the death of your sister when you were very young. Yeah, that was a, uh, I'll be honest with you, that drew a wedge between everybody. And when I say everybody from my mom, my dad, my brother, nobody knew how to cope with it. And how, me, how old were you and how old was your sister? So I was two and my sister was four. And so, at the, so but, I think more importantly, what kind of got me that I learned at an early age later on in life that my parents couldn't cope with it because, so my mom was a teenage parent. She was kicked out of her house at the age of 16 with my brother. She worked three jobs. And my father had a daughter before my sister who was killed by the baby mama, um, put her next to a, a window in Boston and she got caught pneumonia and died because they wasn't seeing eye to eye. My, my father didn't choose her. So with him, with his second death, it drew a wedge between everybody. Father came drunk and, and just kind of sorrowed in his own thing. My mom, she really couldn't, she, she couldn't process life. So that, that left me kind of creating my own image of life. That kind of helped me shape my own feelings and different things like that because Growing up, I didn't understand why I was left out. You know what I mean? That was the biggest thing um, that, frankly, pissed me off. I mean, it was times when my father would get drunk and he'd be like, why the fuck God didn't take you instead of the girls? And I was like, I don't fucking know. Won't you die and ask him? So growing up, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand. Dude, I don't fucking know. I don't know why they died. You know what I mean? So, and, and my mom, she couldn't. She couldn't process it. I mean, she, my sister actually died in the bed with her. So she, was, she wasn't able to process it. And now when we talk about it, that was kind of why she pushed me into a teenage father because my daughter in her mind was the replacement of her daughter, not realizing how it fucked me up. So the grandmother, you got one angry drunk and one heroin addict your words. Right. One of those was your mother's mother. Correct. So your mother grew up the same trauma you did. Absolutely. So my, the anger drunk was my grandma, my mother's mother. So when my mom became pregnant at 15, my grandma gave her an ultimatum, have abortion or get the fuck out. And my mom chose to get the fuck out. She worked three jobs and my, my brother's dad left her and went to the army and never looked back. I mean, so she grew up with her own chip on her, her shoulder. Which you inherited. 
Yeah. So the the thing about it is, shit, fucking inherited. I mean, I was it was passed down to me. It was it was basically shoved down my throat. So you told me this when we first met, and then you won't remember this, but when we first met, I'm skipping ahead to Pure, which we'll get to down the road, and we were talking about all that you're doing, and I was walking around looking at this place going, what am I seeing here? I remember you saying that you knew at a very early age, preteen, that you had a choice. There were two tracks. You either be a, an addict and a junkie, or you'd be a dealer. Clear. It was. It was. It was simple. Because you know I mean? was, that's what you saw. That's 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 what I saw. That's where I lived. That was the talk. That so was, when did you decide you were going to be a dealer and not a junkie? I think I was like eight or nine. I, eight I never, or nine. I never, you know, at eight or nine, you're supposed to be reading Curious George and going to Incredible Pizza and driving go karts. No, nah, not in poverty. That may be your life. That may be the life for your kids. But in poverty... It wasn't my life, but it is the life of my kids. But you ain't, ain't no fucking incredible pizza. You just hoping to get pizza. But I never forget, I was walking, I walked in on my grandma fucking, and the guy says, get the fuck out of here, or you next. The guy said that to you? Yeah, and I knew right then, no way. Meaning, I ain't gonna be the junkie. I ain't gonna be the junkie. I'm not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna be the victim. If anything, I'm gonna be the guy in power. I'm gonna be controlling this. That's not gonna happen to me. So, I don't know if you know a guy named Arshay Cooper. He was a guest some months ago. He's from Westside Chicago. He is from the same, you put what you're from in Memphis and put it in Chicago or Chicago here, same, same world. Right. And he describes his environment like this. In his apartment, they had a fan because the air didn't blow very cold in, in their project. And the fan had a blade a little out of balance. And so every time it rolled around, it clicked. So it was like just this fan, click, 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 click when it ran. Well, it did that all the time. So when you lived there, you didn't even hear the clicking. You got used to it, right? right? But if you walked in their apartments, first thing you'd hear is that air take and click. But it was so common to them that the clicking of that fan was, you know, no big deal. They didn't hear it, it was just common. And he said, drugs, junkies, drug dealers, murder, gunshots, blood on the street, the wells of yet another mother losing a son to gunfire, crime, beatings, jail, all of that was so common in his environment that it was like the clicking of that fan in his apartment. You just didn't even hear it anymore. Absolutely. I mean, you got to think in terms of, you only think something foreign if you go to a foreign place. I mean, so when you start looking up, man, your auntie getting her ass kicked by a boyfriend, so she called you and your brothers and your cousins to come over. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all part of it. It's, it's all intertwined. I mean, from, from every part of the family, you're going to get this dysfunctional. It's hard for our listeners to understand or even maybe even believe it, but I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to just, did you not know all that was wrong? No. So here, here's the thing, here's the thing 
the one with the biggest gun determines what is right and what is wrong. If somebody walked in this building right now and said, get the fuck down, and he got a Draco, guess what? Everybody gonna get their ass down, because that's what's right. You do, right and wrong is what determines to save your life, not a law. So what perceives to be wrong to somebody else is right to somebody else that's fighting for their life. So there is no respect for the law, the police, what society norms are, because none of those you are about your survival. How are you gonna respect something that don't respect you? Ain't nobody, ain't, ain't nobody coming to the hood checking on you. Ain't nobody trying to help you out. So, I mean, th that's a learned behavior. If it's fuck me, it's fuck you. Like, it's, it's, a, learn, it's a learned behavior. It's, it's not the law. So, look at the law like this. I'm selling coke to provide for my family, and the law is coming to stop me. The fuck? Like, how can I respect that? You're not coming in with an application from, from Medtronic. You come in, what are you saying? Get the fuck down. So where's the respect there? I'm gonna play a devil's advocate. Free school, you can get breakfast in the morning, you get lunch in the afternoon, you can get an education. Uh, society is trying to provide for your basic needs. You can get government-assisted housing. You can apply for, if you're a mother with children, you can apply for WIC or whatever they call it now. Listen, and get all of that's cool. But tell me what a kid can do. I, I'm. Yeah, if you, I said if, devil's advocate, yeah, bro. Like, yeah, if your mom, if she go and get that, then yeah, cool. But what if she's a fucking junkie and she's selling the food stamps? Well, then you ain't got that meal. See what I'm saying? Oh, I see like, what you're like, saying. Like, 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 so yeah, that's that's cool for the adults. But I always try to tell people, what about the kids? Like, the kids can't sign up for WIC. I mean, the, the, the kid can't stop the mama boyfriend from molesting him. Can't stop that shit. Like, I mean, so when you look at it, the kids are powerless. Like, yeah, we can put in all these government assistance, but that's still based on what? The adults that grew up in a bunch of bullshit. So they don't even know how to take advantage of the opportunity in front of them. So well, that opportunity never meets the kid. And now a few messages from our generous sponsors. But first, I hope you'll consider becoming a premium member of the Army at normalfolks.us. By becoming one for 10 bucks a month or $1,000 a year, you can get access to cool benefits like bonus episodes, a yearly group call, and even a one-on-one -on -one call with me. Frankly, guys, premium memberships also help us to grow this army that our country desperately needs right now. So I hope you'll think about it. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I learned of Anassis that floored me, I... I'm the son of a five-times divorced woman. My struggles throughout my 40s stemmed around fatherlessness for me. Um, I dealt with, truth is, I still deal with some of it at 55 years old, man. It never goes away. Not that level of hurt. You, you start to ask yourself, You know, why do I lack so much value that not a single grown-ass man will invest in me? And you start to think of yourself as broken. And then self-fulfilling prophecy takes over and you do broken shit. And that was my reality. Having said that, that I'm a big father-stay-in-kids-life guy. I think it's paramount for our society and our civilization. I think a lot of what ails our children today is fatherlessness. There's, it's a multitude of problems, but I think it's a big one, especially since it's very personal to me. I got straightened out one day by a mom who had three kids, and the father of those three kids was the same man, and they lived in the apartment together. And I was like, 
why don't you show your kids what marriage looks like? Why don't you actually go down the courthouse, get a marriage license, be married, and start to do the things to break that proverbial chain? Right. And she looked at me like I was half out of my mind, and she said, you don't know nothing. And I'm like, she's like, don't you know that if I get married, I lose all my government support? So what I learned was, on the one hand, our national narrative is we've got to do things to support the organic family and keep families together, and, 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 and that'll help. And then on the other hand, we incentivize women with children to not get married because if they do, they lose their assistance. And that's all over the inner city. Seems to me like that makes government a little paternalistic. It depends on how you look at it. Help me. So in terms, that's how she grew up. So that's all she knows. Right. That's how her mom grew up. Right. So that's all she knows. So Same in, like your mom. Right. So in terms, government assistance is the way to go. So we'll, all right, we can go down here and we can get married. This motherfucker still make $12 an hour, though. So we're going to get mad to be, to get married to be in a fucked up a situation? Because you got to think about it, that shit with him starting when he was six, seven years old. So all he's doing is the best he can now. So in turn, she's looking at it from a strategic self-preservation mode. Uh, yeah, we love him. Man. He's down, but what's the realization of it? He can't take care of us. I can't take care of us. So that's been passed down generation of generation of generation. So now that woman and many women's, women and my mom and, and, and the same rest of them, they look at it as a survival tool. I get it. I didn't. I get it now. I've gotten it for a while, but I wanted our, I wanted our, I wanted our audience to hear it yeah, and understand she, it. Because most people don't really get that, Melvin. But here's the thing about it, because the reason most people don't get it is two reasons. The shoe always fit different when it's on your foot. That's first and foremost. And what people fail to understand is the same knowledge that you have access to and that I have access to. It's not guaranteed that person in North Memphis, South Memphis, Orange Mound, or Stony Island in Chicago, they don't have access to that same information. So it's like, ah, why you can't get up and get a fucking job? Okay, how? Well, then we, well, we got this program across town. All right, but the mentality has been embedded. So this is what a lot of people didn't understand about women. Women carry their kids when they're born. So their kids are going through trauma as those moms are growing up. They don't just automatically at 30, oh, I got a fucking egg, now I'm about to spit something out. Those eggs was born with them. So through those years of trauma, what do you think those eggs are doing? They're ingesting it too. It's the same thing if you smoke weed the whole pregnancy. What do you mean? You're going to come out with a fucking pie head. You're going to come out with a crackhead. What's the same thing? That trauma is embedded inside of them. I mean, because the baby is a part of them. The trauma is a part of them. Trauma, it shapes your decision making. Why the fuck would he do that? Look what he was up against. I mean, like I said, it's easy to say, oh man, I wouldn't have done that. How you know? How you know? That's why I tell people all the time. 
How you know what you'd do if your family was starving? You don't know. She, you stick Bill ass up if your family was starving. <laughs> Give it here. <laughs> Man, that's the reality of yeah. it. What's the, what's, the, what's the first thing a baby does when they're hungry? They cry. So it's self-preservation. It's the same way. It's, it's nothing different. It's just that these are the things that's been put into the hood to call it survival mode. And then let's be honest. Yeah, okay, you got people living off the government and this, this, and this. But those budgets are so big, somebody's getting a kickback. Because you know, just like I know, wherever there's poverty, there's fucking profit. Poverty equals profit. So uh, that's what you grow up in. And now you're eight, and you decide, I ain't going to be no junkie. I'm going to be a dealer. And you... <laughs> You've, you've got a built-in training model how to do that because all your cousins and uncles are dealers. I got the manual right there. <laughs> the instruction manual. And the trainer. What to do. What not to do. So the tell trainer. me what you do. You know what I mean? Hey, hey listen. I don't want to do that. I want to do what y'all do. Then, for you know it, what's the best way you learn? Look do and it. listen. You ain't got to teach me nothing. Just put me around, and I'm going to look and listen. Okay. That's how he cook it. Okay, so he get the money first, then... Well, there you go. No different than a, uh, a kid growing up in suburbia watches their dad be an accountant. No different. Hey, Dad, where you going? Work. See you later, Johnny. Or a doctor. Doctor, what you doing? Hey, I saved three lives today. I delivered four babies today. So when I'm sitting around the house talking with a couple of my old fraternity brothers from Ole Miss and my eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old sons are here. He's digesting all of that. He's thinking, oh, you go to college, you join a fraternity, you make good friends, you graduate, you get a job, you get a nice house and a car because that's, that's what, what I see. see. That's what he see. Or me, you grow up in the hood, your uncle's dealing crack and weed, your grandmother's a junkie, you make a choice to be a drug dealer, and that's what you do. Right. You, you think about so it like it's natural. That. So you think about it like this. You can pick the best person in the world. And you say, hey, what the fuck you want to be? You want to be a junkie or you're going to be a dealer? All of them going to pick what I pick. <laughs> Who want to get fucked for drugs? <laughs> you want to be a doctor or a drug dealer? Doctor, sign me up. <laughs> That's what every kid in the hood. But how? How? What's the resources? Who's going to show me? But more importantly, who asked that question? All right, you can easily say, all right, Bill, you want to be a doctor? Yeah, yeah, of course I want to be a doctor. But if you don't provide me with the resources, if you don't put me around the people, if you don't give me access to the knowledge, if you don't give me access to these things, well, all, all you did was waste my time. That's all you did. All you, so, all you did was, if we talked for 60 minutes, if we talked for 45 minutes, all you did was blow smoke. Made yourself feel good. Because the reality of it is, until you turn me on to a doctor or show me the pathway, there's no way I'm going to be a fucking doctor. It's, just, it's, it's not rocket. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. I didn't. I was born on March 4th, 1985. And I can assure you, when I came out, I said, hey, God, turn me into a killer and drug dealer. That's what I choose to be. And I want to dodge the feds and niggas and bullets all day long. 
No, that ain't what I said. That ain't what no kid said. Are you saying the zip code at the time of your birth doesn't necessarily persuade you toward drug dealing? It, it absolutely does, because you don't have a choice. But it shouldn't. Why? Tell me why. Let, let me tell you. Because, You're going to tell me about because the 1%. Because my children were born into the same zip code that you were born into in that same environment. They'd be just like it me. It is highly unlikely they'd be where they are today. Correct. They'd be just like but me. But it doesn't mean that genetically those children are predisposed toward drug dealing or whatever because of the zip code at the time of their birth. It's not a genetic thing. It is an environment thing. I think it's both. Do you? I think it's both. Tell me how. In terms of... You know how you breed a horse or you breed a dog? Yeah. You bring gang members the same way. Mm. I know guys, my granddaddy was a vice lord, my daddy was a vice lord, I'm gonna be a vice lord, my son gonna be a vice lord. That's generation. So you gotta think about some of those kids that's born into gang families from from get up. This what we do, so this what you do. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So... You're honing your skills at drug dealing at eight, nine years old, following around your uncles, learning the trade, and you find out that uh, you might like football, too. How'd that happen? You know, the crazy part about it is football always got everybody around the, around the TV. Yeah. No matter where you go, the drug dealers, the common people, everybody, everybody loves football. So, you know, back Even the junkies. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Everybody won't be a Cowboy fan. Yeah, no. All day long. Don't even bring that Cowboy stuff over here, but go ahead. So, when you, <laughs> so back then, yeah, you know, Notre Dame was always on five. So, when people would crowd around the TV, I thought, like, fuck. I want to be celebrated. Like, anybody you find that say they don't want to celebrate, that'd be a damn lie. So, I said, okay, well, football make people happy and celebrate you. And people celebrate drug dealers as well. Well, shit, there you go. And I knew it from there. So even with my parents, they like football. Everybody was liking football. So I said, that's the common ground. I said, well, I can make people like me and I can provide for me and my daughter. So that's what I wanted to do. Well, at the time, my family. So I was like, well, this is what we're going to do. You like, skipped to your daughter. How old were you? So I was 14. So that was that was that was kind of my stay in of it all. But growing up, it was just like this: is what we're gonna do. Like, how, I, how old was your daughter's mother? So she was fifteen. You were fourteen. She was fifteen, she, pregnant. Yeah. And now you're a fourteen-year-old father. And now, now my hustling done turned up. Now I got an even bigger reason to hustle. Because you you do feel a responsibility to provide for your daughter. So the thing about me was I had, growing up I had so much resentment for my father, I wanted to be shit like him. So I wanted to pour all my efforts into being a father. Cause I didn't understand at the time why he couldn't give me what I needed, what I wanted. You know what I mean? Why I couldn't get that love, why I couldn't get that support. Well, so I figured, I said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the father that I wish I could be. And at the time, my child mom, she was poor. She couldn't afford clothes as she was going through the pregnancy. And at the time, my best friend, he was already hustling. And so it was, it was a simple way. Like I had the best friend that was hustling. I had my uncles and cousins that was hustling. And all and, and the decision was, was across the board. Hey, you got a kid, you got to step up. This is the way you step up. Nobody, you, you can't what go. What about school? School. School ain't paying the bills. I mean, we're going to show up so they won't call, but school ain't paying no bills. You know what I mean? For me... How did, I, you, how did you get promoted 
from one grade to the next. Shit, you ever been to a Memphis public school? I'm not, I, yeah. I'm, All just, you I'm do, letting you tell the story. All you got to do is show up and say, here, baby. <laughs> That's it. No you, child left behind. I'm here. One of my biggest surprises my first year as Manassas, when I walked in, there was a class that had five periods of history. And each class had about 30 kids in it. And there were 30 textbooks. Now, 30 times 5 is 150 kids, meaning there should be 150 textbooks so kids can take their books home, do their homework, bring them back. Those books sat on the desk. Yeah. Kid came in, book was on the desk, teacher did whatever teaching they call themselves doing, book shut, kid left. No way to do homework, no way to study outside the hour in the classroom. And as long as the kid showed up, shut up, didn't cause too many problems, and was able to kind of pass a rudimentary test, they're promoted. Yeah. What's the first letter in attendance? First letter in a sentence? In, in attendance. A? <laughs> Show up, we give you A. <laughs> That's all you gotta do. Show up! Which perpetuates the poverty, perpetuates the helplessness, perpetuates the hopelessness, and perpetuates the feeling that I gotta do something I ain't got an education now to go get a job. Nobody cares. So I got to hustle. You just, by giving me an A, by showing up, you just showed me the value of an education. That's a great point. Say that again. That's really good. You show, When the you, school system itself gives you an A for showing up. You just showed me the value of an education. Nothing. You just, you just showed Be me. Be present. And so... Or do you I, have teachers say? I have say, employed people huh? who show up every day for six months and do a pretty average job. They just get through the day, take two or three bathroom breaks. Now, I got, I got a break, a lunch break, and a break during an eight-hour shift. And in addition to those, three or four more lunch breaks or breaks during the day, go to the bathroom, whatever. And after six months, say, I want to race. Yeah. And I, at first, I'm like, why? You haven't earned anything. And they're like, I'm here. I'm here, I showed up. So where does that mentality come from? Well, it's learned. It's learned. Everything is learned. All behavior is learned. You but somewhere along the lines, you decided you wanted to play football. I did. And, um, and it just came from wanting to be accepted. So I knew if I can be a football player, people will crowd around the TV and watch me. <laughs> Do, do you realize that fewer than one one-hundredth of one percent of the people playing high school football today will ever make a living playing the game? You realize That is one in 10,000. You realize only one percent of kids in Memphis that lives in poverty are going to be successful? So I still got a better chance of going to the fucking NFL. <laughs> so I'm taking them odds all day long. And okay. twice on Saturday. Okay, so you wanted to play football. Did you love the game, or did you love the, what the game might give you? In the beginning, I loved what the game might give me. And then you fell in love with the game. Then I fell in love with the game. But the game, the game was hard. Game is hard. It, it, There's um, a difference of being hurt and injured, and you're hurt every play. Yeah. I mean, and just. Unless you played, you don't know what I just said. Right, and then you're sitting there and you're trying to figure out, like, man, I'm, I'm being held accountable for all these things. You know what I mean? Like, and, you, and you're sitting there and, like, and then on top of it, football is a business. 
no matter if you're in middle school, you're in high school, you're in college, you're in the national force, it's still a business. So when, you, when I started to understand that, it was like, okay. Like, so this is what the world looks like no matter what. So in my mind, football was just like weed and cocaine. It was only a vehicle to get me where I was trying to go, period. If them motherfuckers had been sitting around watching soccer, I would have dreamed of being a soccer player. I was only trying to get out of my situation. That's the biggest thing. That was, that was the biggest thing of, of me growing up. But Melvin, let's talk about situation. let's talk about that. When your three top options are dealing drugs, playing a professional sport, or becoming a musician, which is the same. See, I didn't even have that option. But that's in the same world that we're talking Correct. about. Correct. Once again. Hollywood is not called the city of broken dreams because everybody that goes out there to be a musician succeeds. It's because most fail. Most will never have the requisite talent, character, commitment, and ability to make a living playing a sport. Absolutely. And dealing drugs is going to lead you to jail or death. Absolutely. So if you aren't the one in 10,000 that make it in music, the arts, or football, where do you go? Well, you mean you're one of these guys that keep depriving prisons filled? Because that's what, so you got to think in terms of, that's what everybody glorifies. Ain't nobody glorifying the black doctor. Ain't nobody glorifying Johnny Cochran. You talking about in the hood? Yeah. Well, we talking about LeBron. We talking about Jordan and Kobe. We talking about Gotti. So in kids' mind, that's reality. Because what? They're able to see them through social media. Is able to glorify when they're not able to see these other messages being glorified. Do kids in the hood know who Ben Carson is? No. And w, the only reason, w. E. Du Bois? And the only reason I know Ben Carson, because they said he was the first black man to do surgery, but he was only standing in the room and never really did it. What about W. E. Du Bois? Shit, I think he got a few schools. But most kids... Yeah, I don't even know who he is. I just know he got some schools. So. Ain't nobody teaching that. Ain't nobody teaching that. Hey, man, come in here. Courtney, here. Got him. <laughs> Make sure I, all the kids I, I, come I, in I, so we can get their head count for the state funding. I, I chuckle behind a broken heart. Because, I mean, that's what it is. So all the... The principals and all those people want to make sure that their head count is up so that school can get the money that comes out of Nashville. Nobody giving a fuck about the kid. What you just said is really important to understand that the vast majority of large urban school districts... Based off attendance. Right. So at a graduation, uh, most every graduation I've been through from an urban school district the guidance counselor, the principal get on stage and they brag about all the scholarship money that the graduating class is getting. Bullshit. And what you find out is it's accumulation of a bunch of Pell Grant money. If you're left-handed, we'll give you a scholarship for $5,000. If your mama was in World War II, we'll give you <laughs> 10 more thousand dollars. And then many of these kids go off to what I call Pell Grant processing centers which is 
some school that you've never heard of. Yep. The kid enrolls. The state sends the the institution the Pell Grant money. The kid can never pass any work because he's not educated because he's never been taught anything. He fails out. The school keeps the Pell Grant money, and then here comes another crop every year, and yep. it is year after year after year, and it starts in the high school level and permeates through the college level, and it is a money grab. Yeah, or you got those guys that go off to school, and then let's say you one of those one or two percent you do graduate, then you look up four years, the damn college done lost their accreditation. <laughs> so now you're looking like, ah, what now? What now? You know what I mean? Down there, you you turn in a resume and you're getting Google. His college got shut down five years ago. So that'll let you know what's coming out of there. Then in turns, we're back in the hood. So you get pretty good at football. Yeah. And I think you end up at White Station. And for our listeners, it's a national show. White Station is a city school, part of the city school district in East Memphis, uh, which is a nicer part of the city. It is actually considered still a pretty good public school that has nice facilities and um, is usually pretty competitive in all of the sports. And they actually have a baccalaureate program where a lot of kids go to school there and get great grades. And then they have the the normal um, population. But in large part, it's a good school. Correct. And you end up there, I think, as a junior in high school. So, uh, sophomore. Sophomore. How's that experience? Hated it. Why? I was already into my life. Which was? Man, I had already had a daughter. She had already turned one. I mean, I was already heavily into the drugs, the gangs. I mean, my life, I, I didn't even play my ninth grade year. And after my eighth grade year, I was kicked out of school for gang fighting. So I spent the latter part of my eighth grade year expelled. And then my ninth grade year, all I did was sell drugs to kind of going through the pregnancy with my, with my baby mom. So it's like that time had passed me. You know what I mean? It's like. So by your sophomore year, you're grown. Yeah, I'm doing the shit you do. And that was, that was the argument that I had with my high school coach. At White Station? At White Station, I said, dog, me and your daughter are the same age. What are you going to tell me? Like, he was telling me all this good shit, and, and I appreciate him from We still stay in contact to this day, but <clears throat> the advice he was giving me, it didn't match the situation that I was going home to. <laughs> it wasn't any good. I couldn't use it. So did you play that year? So. I did. I, I played that year. I, I battled. I went back and forth. And I was eventually board suspended, kicked out of White Station. Then what? So the coach ops, he says, he takes another job out of coaching. And he says, I got his friend. I'm saying, he said, Melvin, I'm telling you, this football thing can change your life. Like, you got talent where it can change your life. And I kept telling him, I was like, coach, I agree, but... What about the now? Like, my daughter needs food now. Like, what about now? And so he orchestrated where I go to this private school. The, the private school, it was, it was great. What was it called? Broadcrest. Uh, and if Hang I was, on. For our listeners, 
Briarcrest is a very nice private school out in the suburbs, large private school. And candidly, um, it's famous because it is where Michael Orr went to school. Uh, the story of Michael Orr and the Tuies, and um, it's called Briarcrest Christian High, I think. Um, and uh, um, if you've ever seen The Blind Side, this is the high school we're talking about. Right. And were you there before or after Michael? So I was before Mike. I'm the one that told Mike it was cool. <laughs> so you go to Briarcrest, <laughs> and the craziest part of this story, uh, this football part of the story is Hugh Freeze, who is now the head coach at Auburn, was the head coach at Liberty, was the head coach at Ole Miss, was the head coach at Arkansas State, and before that, the head coach at Lambeth, um, actually got his start as an assistant coach at Ole Miss under coach Ed Orgeron because Michael Orr and Hugh Freeze went to Ole Miss together, and that's how Hugh Freeze broke into college football coaching. But back then, he was your head coach at Briarcrest High School. He was my head coach that couldn't win the state championship. He had lost four years in a row. ECS used to beat that booty. He couldn't get over the hump. And? He called in reinforcements. We got him over that hump. <laughs> and that, my friends, concludes part one of my conversation with Melvin Cole. And if you thought that was compelling, you do not want to miss part two that's now available as we dive deeper into Melvin's excelling at football and drug dealing empire until he didn't and what he's doing now to serve inner city kids. But if for some strange reason you do miss part two, make sure to join the army of normal folks at normalfolks.us and sign up to become a member of the movement. By signing up, you'll also receive a weekly email with short episode summaries in case you happen to miss an episode or if you prefer reading about our incredible guests. Together, guys, we can change this country and it starts with you. I'll see you in part two. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.